All right, turn in your Bibles to the New Testament as we return to our study of the Lord's ministry. <clears throat> we have three different places of text for our opening. If you just want to turn to one, though, uh, you can turn to Matthew. I'm going to read the Mark account first, but the Matthew account, since there are actually two events at this outline, uh, the second event, Matthew is the only one that covers it. So if, you, if you're not into flipping to a bunch of different places, you can turn to Matthew 17, and we'll start reading there in just a moment. This event, Christ again foretells his death and resurrection, takes place in Mark 9, verses 30 through 32, Matthew 17, verses 22 through 23, and Dr. Luke records it in Luke 9, verses 43 through 45. I'll read the Mark account first, as I typically tend to do. <clears throat> I don't do that for a particular reason, in case anybody's wondering. Uh, the, the last few events, uh, he has actually given us most of the standard details, and it makes it a little easier. Uh, if you're looking at my outlines, the parts that are underlined in the other two accounts are things he didn't cover. Uh, but he's, he's allowed for so much detail in his own account that it's just easier to put his first. Mark 9, verses 30 through 32 says, And they departed thence, and passed through Galilee. And he would not that any man should know it. For he taught his disciples, and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. <clears throat> but they understood not that saying, and were afraid to ask him. Uh, you might mark, if you write in your Bibles, that word delivered. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. It's a, it's a verb that I want to give a little bit more application to. Matthew's account, Matthew 17, verses 22 through 23 says, And while they abode in Galilee, uh, that's new information underlined in the outline, while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And the third day he shall be raised again. And they were exceeding sorry. Luke 9, verses 43 through 45, starts out, And they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. Now recall... Uh, the event that just took place before that was the healing of that demoniac child, the lunatic child, the one the father uh, came forth and uh, was asking for a healing while the Lord Jesus and the inner circle were up at the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, they weren't able to, the nine that remained, the church members that remained, weren't able to perform the healing. During that time, the scribes came and uh, attempted to humiliate the church while the Lord was absent. They lacked power, perhaps lacked authority, weren't able, weren't faithful, weren't believing enough uh, to perform this healing. And the Lord addresses the situation. The Lord explains to them it's a lack of faith was the root of the problem uh, for this lack of healing. He addresses the scribes and all this we talked about last Sunday. And this is what they were amazed at is that he healed the boy. So that's where we start immediately with Luke 9 verse 43. And they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. But while they wondered everyone at all things which Jesus did, he said unto his disciples, let these sayings sink down to your ears. <laughs> I love that phrase. If I used that phrase, someone would be offended, I'm sure. But this, this is Jesus who says this. Let these sayings sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. But they understood not this saying, and it was hid from them, again, new information, that they perceived it not, and they feared to ask him of that saying. This being hid from them 
references very similar to the text that Steve read earlier that I referenced last week about the two individuals that the Lord walked with after his resurrection and it was hid from them that he was Jesus. Remember we talked last time when I was teaching it we talked last time about how this was a form of witnessing they were saying to him of all the things that Jesus this Jesus of Nazareth went through and they were not allowed to know that this was him. This is very similar. It was hid from them. Uh, it wasn't because Jesus didn't tell them the truth. It wasn't because Jesus didn't use plain words. We see in Mark's account that he says here, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men. They shall kill him, and after he is killed, he shall rise on the third day. And if, if you're a grammarian of sorts or an English teacher, you understand there's a lot of phrases tied together in that one sentence, but they're very simple phrases, and they mean very simple things. And in the original text, he's not using words that are hard to understand. He's literally telling them what's going to happen. So it's not because they were just dumb old fishermen. It's because it was hid from them. They were prevented from understanding. This is why in the end of Matthew's part of this account, it says they were exceeding sorry instead of exceeding uh, glad that they heard he'd be raised again on the third day. That probably, if you read that back to back, it doesn't make sense that in one sentence, they shall kill him, and on the third day, he shall raise again, and then the next sentence, and they were exceeding sorry. It's something we know to be exceedingly grateful for. It's his resurrection that makes possible our resurrection. It's his conquering of death that makes possible our conquering of death. This is the second time that Jesus spoke openly to the twelve about his impending death and resurrection. Back in Mark 8, 31, we read uh, and, and taught on, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. So again, it's not because they're fools. This is the second time they would have heard this lesson. But they still could not grasp what he was saying. The verb there in Mark's account that I, I told you to mark, delivered, indicates that his death was not an accident or a murder. It was the result of a divine plan, uh, a, a fleshly man plan of Judas Iscariot's for sure, as he accepted bribery to sell out with a kiss uh, his lord and master. A sad plan at that. But on the other side of the coin, a divine plan to make possible salvation for the deliverance of man. Romans chapter 4, verses 24 through 25 says, But for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Romans 8, verses 31 through 33. And Lord willing, I was, I was listening to Steve's Sunday school today and convicted again that the next time I get to teach Sunday school, I need to teach through Romans. I've been planning to do that for years. An uh, old preacher told me when I first started attending Baptist churches, that that's one of the greatest books in the Bible when it comes to doctrine. And I teach a lot of doctrine, as many of you have probably already noted, uh, but I've never taught all the way through Romans, and I think, I think it's time. I'm excited for the possibility that might be coming. And I've said it out loud now, so you all have to hold me accountable to finally do it. Romans 8, 31 through 33 says, What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Matthew Henry wrote of the, the specific text that we're looking at for this event. The time of Christ's suffering drew nigh. Had he been delivered into the hands of devils, and they had done this, 
it had not been so strange, but that men, that men should thus shamefully treat the Son of Man who came to redeem and save them is wonderful. Still observe that when Christ spake of his death, he always spake of his resurrection which took the reproach of it from himself and should have taken the grief of it from his disciples. The prediction of Christ's sufferings was plain enough, but the disciples would not understand it because it agreed not with their notions. And, and I encourage you to not, not, be, not be foolish worldly readers. When we read of an old commentator saying that something that we would describe as being awful or full of awe, and he describes it as wonderful, he's not saying that it's a good thing. The word literally means full of wonder, that it should astound us and we should be full of wonder at the idea that of all the spiritual things, the invisible things to man in the universe that are greater and more powerful and more aware of all these things, that man would be used. He says that should, be, that should fill us with wonder. Uh, again, I, I've referenced Tolkien a few times in recent weeks. I'm reading one of his books that I haven't read in a long time or ever. Uh, and, and we see a lot of parallels there as well. That man would be involved in any of the things happening with the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbits and such is astounding. And that, I believe this is what he's drawing from, or at least what I'm going to use as a parallel to draw from it, that man is powerless in this situation, powerless to save himself, certainly not able to conquer God. That Jesus, for this to work, had to permit it. It was, there's a hand of God, an expression of God, an authority of God that's allowing for this to take place. That man would be used in such a way uh, should astound the mere observer. It really should. Now for the second event in here, I don't have a grandiose title, but it takes place in Matthew 17, verses 24 through 27, where it says, And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? He saith, yes. And I, I, if you mark your Bible, you might mark that three-word sentence. This is Simon Peter. He saith, yes. And what is Simon Peter known for? Sometimes speaking before he should. And when he was come into the house, Jesus prevented him, Simon Peter. And he said unto him, What thinkest thou, Simon? Of whom did the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of strangers? Peter saith unto him, Of strangers. Jesus saith unto him, Then are the children free? Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go thou to the sea, cast an hook, and take up the fish that first come up. And when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money. That take and give unto them for me and thee. What a paradox. The king is too poverty-stricken to pay his temple dues. Truly he became poor that we might be made rich, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. It's an interesting thing to look at it through this light, because every time I've ever heard this text used, it's, it's always been on, the emphasis has always been on the miraculous money fish, this fish that come up with money in it. And as a kid, I always looked for some kind of coin in a fish's mouth and never found one. And I was not a great fisherman, so I had to look in the mouth of my brother's fish because he caught fish like it was what he was born to do. But there was never any money in it. And every time this text has been used, it's always been the emphasis of this fish. The fish did nothing. This fish wasn't looking to eat money. He wasn't looking for fame. He wasn't looking to be recorded in the, in the word of God. But the emphasis of this text is that once again, Simon Peter takes it upon himself to speak before he ought. 
They ask him, those who collect the tribute money, they say to Peter, doth not your master pay tribute? When someone asks you of what your master does, what the Lord and Savior does, you need to give it some thought. Don't just say yes. Don't just say yes. Give it some thought. Study the Word of God. If you don't know the answer, say, I, I don't know for sure the answer. I need to consult the Word of God. I need to call my brethren, the preacher, the pastor, the Sunday school teacher. I, I need counsel because I'm not sure how to answer. Now, we're going to say in our pride, well, that's silly. This is an easy question to answer. Well, you think that because Simon Peter answered wrong, and I'm making a big speech about it. What would you have said? This question had never been answered before. Would you have consulted the Lord who's right there? by comparison to what we would have to do to consult one of his nature? Or would you have immediately said, well, yes, because yes is the right answer when somebody comes to you that is known for collecting tribute money. The answer is yes. Simon Peter once again speaks out of turn. Simon Peter once again gives us an example of uh, how we need to pray and meditate and consult and look for thus saith the Lord before we dive headlong into doing certain things. There are four distinctive characteristics of this miracle that we must make note of, though, while we have it before us. It, number one, it is the only miracle Christ performed to meet his own needs. Uh, I use that loosely. This is a need that Simon Peter created for him. The temple tax of a half shekel was paid by every Jewish male. Jesus was so poor that he did not have this small amount. This is how humble he was. He was a carpenter. This isn't because he had a, an inability to make money or a disinterest in the idea of making money. He had no need of making money. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, which we've read a lot lately, especially with that Sunday school uh, series we just wrapped up. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. This fee, let's just get a little backstory to it. This fee was referenced, uh, was in reference to the temple tax, not the actual taxes received by the publicans. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 30, we can get a little bit more... Uh, history in regarding this tax. Exodus chapter 30, starting in verse 11. says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, When thou takest the sum of the children of Israel after their number, then shall they give every man a ransom for his soul unto the Lord, when thou numberest them, that there be no plague among them, when thou numberest them. This they shall give, every one that passeth among them that are numbered, half a shekel after the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is twenty giras. And half shekel shall be the offering of the Lord. Every one that passeth among them that are numbered from twenty years old and above shall give an offering unto the Lord. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel. When they give an offering unto the Lord to make an atonement for your souls, and thou shalt take the atonement money of the children of Israel, and shalt appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of the congregation, that it may be a memorial unto the children of Israel before the Lord to make an atonement for your souls. This was to be paid with Jewish shekels. 
And as we referenced earlier toward the beginning of this study, it was the tribute that the money changers would change Roman money into Jewish shekels for a surcharge of their own. This is what we talked about way back in the beginning when we talked about those money changers that were in the temple and what they were really doing with those tables. So this reference here is an offering or tribute money for atonement of souls. And who provides said atonement? When it was fulfilled on the cross, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ had no sin. Did he owe a tribute money? Was he the son of the uh, was he of the children of Israel? I mean, he was of a lineage, but does he have any owing of this tribute money at all? And that's the first thing we want to consider here. It's not just the miracle, but did he owe this money? We could hypothesize all day long where this money came from. This fish got this coin off uh, someone who died in the sea, who, by the way, from this morning's message, will stand at the great white throne judgment when the sea gives them up. We can make all these wonderful connections. We don't know this fish. We don't know this coin. We just know that the Lord paid what Simon Peter had opened up his mouth to owe. So here's the parallel then. The Lord Jesus Christ pays the sum you owe. He pays the sum of the elect of God. Every time they've opened their mouth, every time they've blasphemed, every time they've sinned against God, he's had to pay that debt. He paid it once. He paid it in full and he paid it on the cross. But it wasn't his debt. And that's the parallel we can see from this text. The debt he pays was not his own. The debt he paid on the cross was not his own. We should also note this miracle is recorded only by Matthew. Matthew would know about money dealings, right? We recall that he was a publican. He was a tax collector. He understands the, the principle of paying what is owed, and he also knows a little bit more about the figures of, of these things being owed. The gospel account, as we said in the introduction to this study, was focused on the kingship of the Messiah. And this miracle has to do with Christ's kingship, which is why he includes it. Jesus affirms here that he is the child of the king, not a child of Israel, not a child of man, a child of the king, and therefore need not pay the tax. Christ proved his kingship by performing a very complicated miracle in the literal sense. A coin had to be tossed into the sea at some point. A fish had to take it into its mouth at some point. Then the fish had to bite on Peter's hook. A lot of things for us to note here if we want to really get into the, the exegesis of this miracle and what had to be performed. Even if the fish went and got the coin just the last few minutes before it got the hook, all of this took place before the Lord said to do it. It's very similar to the faithful servant who's praying at the, at the well that the Lord would bless his efforts in serving his master Abraham, and she was already forthcoming towards the well before he finished praying. This is the same action we see here. This fish could have swallowed that coin years before there's a number of things that could have taken place that led to this fish having that coin being in this spot but the point of the matter is christ has dominion over the fish of the sea he has an awareness i mean even if you try to tr oversimplify this and saying this is just a man that sees the future he has an awareness of a fish with a coin of the exact amount to pay this tribute for his group here he has an awareness and, a, and control. He's so much more than just a superior man, beloved. He is the son of God. And while he's 100% man and 100% God, he gave up no power. He gave up no authority. 
Matthew Henry wrote, He who knows all things alone could know it, and only almighty power could bring it to Peter's hook. The power and the poverty of Christ should be mentioned. For our Catholic friends that like to assign popeship to Peter and Paul, let's consider this. Peter was not some great fisher. Jesus didn't say, cast your hook into the water, but only reel in the fish with the coin in it. He knew what fish was coming to that hook. It had nothing to do with Peter. Just like with the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, Simon Peter was used merely to administer, which is the calling we have with the gospel. You didn't write it. You're not to cast a shadow on it. You're merely to administer it to feed the hungry with what you have been given of God. Simon Peter, cast your line into the water. That's all he was called to do. Psalm chapter 8, verses 6 through 8. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea. The timing of it all. I mean, uh, the flesh would have us to use the word coincidence, that this fish with this coin would just be passing by at the right time. Well, maybe it was the tribute collectors that just happened to come by at the right time when the fish was there with the coin in the mouth. We could run around in riddles, but let's just give authority and glory and power and credit to who deserves it, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. The third and final thing for us to consider here is it is the only miracle using money. The tax was a reminder of the Jews' redemption from Egyptian slavery. This was something that Moses quite often reminded God of. When uh, the Israelites were being out of line, when uh, the, the text we read a few weeks back, when God said that, uh, that he would bring pestilence and, and all this in and wipe out the Israelites and start all over again with Moses, Moses used God's words and reminded him that the Egyptians will know that it was you who led us out. It was you that redeemed us, that took us through the baptismal-like waters on dry land that led us thus far, and it's you that would slaughter us. This is not uh, a holiness. This is not what you would do. You redeemed your people. You led them out of Egypt, and that's what this tribute is a reminder of as well. They were redeemed by the Lamb, Exodus 12, not by silver, not by gold. But the silver shekel was a token of that redemption. I wonder if we've ever thought what it would say of the Lord Jesus Christ if he took this opportunity to teach on the importance of paying temple tax. This is not what he's teaching here. But what if he did? What if indeed he came to teach us the importance of paying taxes? Peter caught the lesson that the Lord was teaching him, pardon the pun. 1 Peter, his own words, chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, Simon Peter writes, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things. And in case we weren't sure what he was talking about, he uses examples of silver and gold. From your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot, who verily who was foreordained before the foundation of the world but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. The true treasure on the top of the mount was not that Elijah and Moses were standing there talking to Jesus. The true treasure was Jesus at the top of the mount 
at the bottom of the mount, when the boy was healed, the demoniac boy was healed, it's revealed again the true treasure is Jesus. Not in words, not in uh, using the same symbolism or finger symbols or whatever the Lord would have done when he was doing these miracles, which I don't believe he did any. But in Jesus himself, he was the treasure. The treasure itself was pumping and coursing through his veins and be, be spilled for the elect of God only. Simon Peter's continuing to learn that lesson that the sacrifice of Jesus was foreordained and it's of the utmost importance. He didn't come to pay taxes. He came to do that which he was teaching in the beginning of his outline, to suffer, die, be buried, and rise again. To suffer as he was delivered by man, not the devil, not fallen angels, not uh, anything but man himself. The sin of man is what took him to the cross. It was performed especially for Peter. Jesus performed many miracles to the benefit of Peter, and I just want to recap a few of them. But this one also was for Peter. We don't even hear another disciple mentioned in this account. He healed his mother-in-law. He helped him walk on the sea, and as he fell, saving him when he began to sink. And then he gives him great catches of fish before when he told him what side to cast the net upon. And there was so much, uh, so many fish, so, such a great weight, the nets broke. If we pay attention to the text, Jesus addresses Simon Peter concerning his answers to these collectors. He's not addressing the fish miracle. Yeah, that's a wondrous thing. Uh, and, and something that will be as a stumbling block, honestly, for the real lesson that's being taught here. Even in the book of Acts, Christ delivered Peter several times. Why did Jesus do all of this for Peter? It was for Peter's good and for God's glory. Whatever the need, Christ can meet it. This is the lesson that we've learned from the mountaintop into the valley and here at the, at the side of the waters concerning tribute money. Simon Peter writes himself in chapter 5, verses 6 through 7, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. This is the point of every lesson that we just referenced. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Can I walk on the water? Can I come out to you? Jesus says, come. As Simon Peter sees his feeble self standing on water and the boisterous storm around him, he begins to sink. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. It's not the storm that caused him to sink. It wasn't uh, the oppression of the wind, the coldness of the water that lured him under. It was his sin, beloved. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. It's not the tribute money. It's the blood. It's not how you say it or how badly you want to heal the demoniac boy. It's faith itself. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he might exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Those last five words. I just want to speak on that for a few minutes. For he careth for you. Sister Sharon and Wanda are good friends. I'm sure they care for one another. My wife cares for me. I'm sure many of you care for one another. Love your children, indeed. But Jesus careth for you. And this has got an if at the end. This means it endures. It continues. He continues to care. My wife and I have had some serious, intense fellowships. And eventually we confess that we care for one another again. 
but it might take a little hit in that time of intense fellowship. Jesus careth for me. He already knows I'm going to let him down over and over and over again. He already knows I can't live up to uh, any set expectations, which is why he has none. He has a command, be ye holy for I am holy, but he careth for me. He continually cares for me. This care is more than just uh, an emotion as two, uh, as a boyfriend and girlfriend might say, I love you, oh, I love you more and all this. That's not what this is. This is a compassion. This is an administering of need. He careth for you. Look how Jesus Christ careth for that writer, Simon Peter. He healed his mother-in-law. He pulled him up out of the waters. He enabled him to do better at the profession that he had in, in his earthly profession times. As far as being a fisherman, he showed him he could do way more. He set high expectations as far as Simon Peter's faith and what the Lord would use him to do, higher than what Simon Peter believed he could be used to do. He had a lack of faith. But he careth for you. He feedeth you. As we go uh, out of the gospel accounts and into the epistles, we're going to start to see the, the role of the Holy Spirit. We're going to start to see the administering of grace even after salvation in our growth, in our feeding, and what the Lord has provided in along, along our path to perfect us in, in, our, in our journey to striving towards Him. He careth for you. You can add in here in parentheses, He ever careth for you because that's what the TH is telling us. He continually, for all times, careth for you. Well, what if I disappoint him? Repent, because he careth for you. You've not lost your salvation. You've been set back. You might have somewhat, in, in man's terms, lost your way and your direction. You might be backslidden, but he careth for you. Thank the Lord your salvation is not based on you carething for him. We'd fail. We'd plummet. That old quote from Spurgeon that I've given many times, if, if the Lord enabled us to take a staircase up to the kingdom of heaven and left us at the last step with one step to take to get into the kingdom, we would plummet all the way to hell. It's not dependent on us carathing for him. I know I'm making that up, carathing. It's solely dependent. Our salvation is solely dependent on those words, he careth for you. That's my prayer today, is that he does care for you. And that you feel his embrace, that you feel his jealousy over you. His, uh, I don't use the word longing because that sounds like he's, he's pleading or waiting for you to do something. But his concern for you, his love for you. The fact that he's not going to let you go. That's, that's the best picture I can think of. He's not going to let you. Here's Simon Peter, every chance he gets, putting his foot right in his mouth. And Jesus says, when he rebukes him, Get thee behind thee, Satan. Man, try saying that to one of your closest friends. I bet you don't talk for a while. But Jesus goes right to Simon Peter and says, Get thee behind thee, Satan. I love you too much to allow any appearances of evil in your testimony. I careth for you that much that I'm going to correct you. I careth for you that much that I'm going to correct you in front of the church. And I'm going to see that they understand the air of your ways here and what you said. You said I give tribute money. I should humiliate you. This is what we would say in the flesh. I should humiliate you and have you go back and tell them I don't pay tribute money. But you said I did. So go get that fish right there. That I appointed before the foundation of the world to have a coin in its mouth on this very day, in this very hour, to be available for you to pluck out 
and keep your word to these tribute people that you could give them the gospel one day and they wouldn't say, you're some liar. You said your master paid tribute and he doesn't. Now Peter's word is redeemed, is it not? Peter's word is good because tribute was paid. That's how much Jesus careth for him. Now I pray that's how much he careth for you.